Well, in the uh, wonderful section of our Constitution known as the Bill of Rights, you can read these words. In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law and to be informed of the nature of the cause of the accusation, to be confronted with witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. Now those words were not in the Constitution as it was initially approved in 1789. They were added in the amendments that we know as the Bill of Rights two years later. You see, our, 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 our founding fathers had gone through this experience of being colonies and gone through the Revolutionary War, and they knew this. They knew that Joe's citizen needed some protection from those in positions of authority, especially when it came to a trial. So this amendment was written down to ensure that our, our most foundational government document treated its citizens fairly when it came to trials. It, it was written because people in power historically trend toward injustice. People in power do that. They trend toward injustice. But not so our God. Not so our God. And this is made very clear in the book of Amos. Uh, you should have noticed by now, if you've been with us while we've been going through Amos, the book of Amos is about God's judgments against his people Israel, specifically the northern kingdom, specifically their acts of injustice. And as we read a book like Amos, we generally tend to focus on the people under judgment, Israel. What did they do bad? Let's not be bad like Israel. And that's a good way to read it. I mean, you don't want to be bad like Israel. I'll say that. But this morning, as we look at Amos 3, what we're going to do is we're going to look at God the judge. We're going to look at God the judge, and we're going to ask this question. Does God judge fairly? Does God judge fairly? But before we go there, I want to remind you of something that's important to us as Christians reading an Old Testament prophet. I want to remind you that covenant context matters. Covenant context matters. God made a covenant with Adam in the garden. And Adam failed rather quickly to keep his one covenant restriction. So Adam and all of Adam's descendants lost the covenant blessings and fell under the covenant judgment. And the judgment was spiritual death. And so now every man, woman, boy, and girl is born with a nature and of sin and proves it by sinning. And that's why every man, woman, boy, and girl is born with a judgment problem. They're under judgment and they need someone to solve that problem. So God later makes another covenant. He makes a covenant with a special people called Israel. They'll be his special people. He makes a covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he lays out the rules for living as those covenant people with with Moses. He gives the rules to Moses. And so Israel has this special covenant as a special people with special rules that if they follow, they'll enjoy the covenant blessings. But Israel, like Adam, blew it. They blew it over and over. And as the book of Amos makes abundantly clear, Israel lost the covenant blessing of joy and peace in the land 
and fell under the covenant judgment, which we're going to find is defeat and exile. Now, as we hear that story, the, the Old Testament story, we're going, man, that's a lot of covenant failure and judgment. But know this, God was not surprised. God was not shocked by this. He was ready for it. Knowing that fallen man would never accomplish covenant faithfulness in his own strength, God made a covenant before time began with his son. His son would take on flesh as a man, and his son would keep the covenant perfectly as a representative man, and his son would suffer and die and pay for the covenant breaking of everyone who trusted God. As I said, covenant context matters. It matters in our study of Amos for one big reason. It matters because the judgments Amos pronounces on Israel are judgments based on their covenant context, which is different than our covenant context. Amos is speaking to an Israel, a, a people in covenant with God as a geopolitical nation, right? They, they have a government, they have boundaries. And Israel's covenant promised blessings had to do with that, that geographic location, long life and prosperity in the promised land. And, but the thing was, the, the, the promised blessing only comes with covenant keeping on the part of the nation. They had to keep covenant to enjoy the blessings and the land. Covenant breaking? Well, that brings the curses or the judgments. And our, covenant context, our covenant context is different than that, right? We are not a geopolitical people. The, the church of Jesus Christ does not have geographical boundaries, and it, it doesn't have a government with laws. So our, our covenant context is new. We are a spiritual nation. We're a spiritual nation, one whose citizenship's not based on DNA, our role are, are being listed by some government agency, but it's based on faith in Christ. And the promise in our covenant is eternal life and joy in the eternal land of promise. That's the promise of our covenant. And the blessings of that covenant are guaranteed to everyone who has faith in Christ. They are guaranteed. Because Christ kept the covenant for us and took the covenant punishment for us. So our covenant context is a lot different than Israel's. So the big thing that might make you wonder is, why in the world would a Christian study the book of Amos? Because we're not Israel. And we don't have the same thing going on that Israel had. Well, the book of Amos is very useful to us as Christians. And it's useful because God's dealing with Old Covenant Israel paints a picture for us. It paints a picture of how a holy God, and there is only one, paints a picture of how a holy God deals with covenant people based on their covenant keeping here in this life. Because like Israel, we are called to keep covenant with God. We're called to obey God, right? Because Jesus gained the eternal covenant blessings for us and, and, and dealt with the eternal covenant curses, we are told that we are to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Right? So we've got something to do here as God's covenant people, don't we? Right? So, so we have to ask, 
how would God, and there is only one God who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, how would this God deal with his covenant people in obedience to his covenant? Now, we know he's not going to send any of his redeemed to eternal suffering. That's off the table. That's not part of what he does. But what about life in the here and now? What about this life? How will God deal with acts of covenant rebellion, disobedience, in this life? There's a couple ways he'll deal with it. First of all, he certainly will deal with it as individuals. We, just read the, the warning passages in Hebrews, right? About, well, you know, dare we do this? And no, we don't do that, right? Read the warning passages. God deals with it as individuals, but God also deals with churches, and their covenant obedience, right? If you read the book of Revelation, what are the first few chapters of the book of Revelation? It's dealing with seven letters to seven churches who are blessed or judged based on whether they're keeping their covenant with God. God, you see, is still God. He's not changed. So as we learn of his character in Amos as a God dealing with his covenant people in their lifetime, we can depend on the fact he's the same God. His character has not changed. His ideas of justice has not changed. Context has certainly changed, so the specifics have cha changed. We will not be attacked by Assyrians in chariots. All right? I'm, I'm, I'm not a prophet, but I'm going there. All right? That's not going to happen, but God will remain the same. God will remain the same. So we read Amos at least in part because we want to understand how God will deal with us in our covenant context if we break covenant people with him. And what we learn from Amos 3 is this. When God brings punishment on his people in this life, God is fair. God is fair. And you're thinking, that's just like a weird thing to say almost, isn't it? Because that's what I thought when I wrote it down. God is fair. But what that means is this. Nobody will ever be able to point at God and say, God, you were unjust in the way you punished me. Because God is always fair. When God brings punishment on his people, God is fair. And I'm going to ask if you would stand once more in honor of God's word. I'm going to read Amos chapter 3. Amos 3. And this is the word of the Lord. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? 
Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, An adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with a corner of a couch and part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Father, we ask you would bless your word to us this morning. Make its meaning clear. And God, give us hearts and minds to believe and to obey and to honor your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So when God brings judgment to bear on his covenant people in this life, his punishment is fair. God's judgment, first of all, we see this. God's judgment of his people is fair because it considers the accused. God's judgment is fair because it considers the accused. If, if we look at these first eight verses, we see verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2 are a call for Israel to listen as part of God's covenant family. They're not being spoken to as just any people. This is not just anyone he's talking to. These are the people of God. It is their intimate covenant relationship with God that demands this word from God. God is thinking of them specifically, thinking of these people in covenant with me. And he reinforces that with, with rhetorical questions, seven of them in verses 3 through 6. Do people keep walking together when they, when they become opponents? No. Do lions roar just roar if they don't have any prey? No. Do lion cubs cry out in contentment before they have had dinner? No. Do birds only fall into snares if there are no snares? No. Do traps spring if there's nothing steps in them? No. Does the warning trumpet sound off in a city without scaring people? No. The pattern's established. Rhetorical question, no. And then the next question comes in verse 6. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Answer, no. No. There is a divine hand behind the disasters that strike. If a city is destroyed, it is destroyed by the hand of God. God is never a neutral observer in the affairs of this world. And when it comes to his covenant people, verses 7 and 8 remind us, God, the sovereign over history, is a God who speaks directly to his people. In verses 7 and 8, where it talks about the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secrets. It's Yahweh, the Lord of history. He just doesn't act amongst his people in ways that are outside of the ways he's revealed in his word, is what it's saying. God has said, this is how I deal with my people, and that's how he acts. And that word comes through the prophets. And again, the lion has roared. God has his prey. 
The lion has roared through the prophets. He's done it over and over. Because of that, Israel should be in fear. They should fear because the covenant itself came with blessings and curses. And they've put themselves under the curses. And so Amos the prophet, he can do nothing but speak the word of prophecy God has given him to Israel who is under this judgment. God, the sovereign over all the events of time and space, has called a people, made them special with a covenant, and gave them his word that explains what brings blessing and what brings curse. And Israel chose curse. So their judgment will be fitting them. This isn't some random judgment God has pulled out of his hat he's going to throw down on people. It will fit them specifically. It's fair, God's judgment, because it considers the accused. Now, what I am not saying here, so don't hear this, I'm not saying what God does is give sin a pass because he knows people are wired that way. Boys will be boys does not fly with God. I sin because of my past does not fly with God. I sin because of my environment does not fly with God. God knows you as His covenant people who are defined by the fact you are in covenant with Him. Not by your environment, not by your past, not by your personality, but by the fact you are in covenant with Him. When I say that God considers the accused, that's what I mean. They are dealt with according to their covenant relationship with God. Edomites were dealt as, with as Edomites. The only covenant they were under was the covenant of creation. They were still in sin. Israel, on the other hand, was judged based on the covenant God made with them specifically. And what that means for us, your lost neighbor will be judged for their rebellion against God as revealed in the creation, in all of nature. Read Romans 1 and 2. But if you are a Christian, your standard of judgment in this life, what you would be judged for in this life, is the covenant God has made with you. You will be dealt with as a covenant child of God. God judges fairly because His judgment always considers your covenant status, who you really are. God knows your identity, to use the language of our day. God knows your identity, and that identity is firmly established in who you are in relationship to Him. That is your identity, and that makes God the fairest of all judges. God's judgment of His people is fair because it considers the accused, and God's judgment of His people is fair because the crimes of the accused are obvious. The crimes are obvious. Verses 9 and 10 are, are, are awesome, honestly. Verse 9 begins with a call for witnesses. Call for witnesses. Ashdod is called to be a witness. Ashdod is one of the, the big city-states of the Philistines. And Egypt, pagan Egypt, is called to be a, a witness. I mean, these countries have been the enemies of Israel for a long time. They are not the covenant people of God. They are, God, they are people that God is going to judge for their wickedness, as we saw in the first part of the book of Amos. But they're called to be witnesses. Now, why would God call them, these wicked people, to be witnesses? Simple. Because the crimes of Israel against God are so obvious that even pagan, wicked nations will point at them and say guilty. They are sinning. Verse 10 describes the depravity of Israel that's witnessed by Ashdod in Egypt. Israel is violent. 
Israel is unjust. The strong steal from the weak and they hoard it. In fact, things in Israel are so bad that Israel no longer remembers how to do right at all. They do not know how to do right anymore. They've been practicing wickedness so long. I mean, what a courtroom picture. It's like God went to the prison of the nations, brought out a couple of nations in orange jumpsuits, set them up to be witnesses against Israel and say, what did you see them doing? And they said, oh man, these guys are wicked. These guys are wicked. God's judgment of his people is fair because the crimes of the accused are obvious. Friends, God, not, God is not going to bring judgment uh, against his covenant people for debatable behavior. There will not be one iffy thing that God judges his people for. You know, the, the constitution of our land, we read, it ensures you can have a lawyer to help you navigate the ins and the outs of our incredibly complicated legal system. You will not need a lawyer if your covenant God stands against you and says you are guilty. Because it will be obvious that you are guilty before your God. You will stand guilty. You will know you were guilty. The world will know you were guilty one day. You know as I do, it, it is rare for a person in obedience to be one going around claiming there are gray areas. Right? Obedient people don't argue for gray areas. It's people that are living in disobedience that argue for gray areas. God's judgment of his people is fair because it considers the accused and the crimes of the accused are obvious. And God's judgment of his people is fair because the punishment fits the crime. Because the punishment fits the crime. If we look at verses 11 to 15, verse 11 is pretty straightforward. Therefore says the Lord, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you and your stronghold shall be plundered. God's message to Israel is this. I'm bringing one of your enemies to town and they're going to tear down every defense you have. Their military will destroy your military. And the outcome is not going to be a good one. All of your loot-filled storehouses, they've been robbing from the poor and storing it up, hoarding it and hoarding it, all of your loot-filled storehouses are going to be raided and emptied by your enemy. Think about that picture, right? What was Israel guilty of? Stealing from the poor and hoarding it in storehouses. What was God going to do to judge them? He was going to bring an enemy stronger than them who would come and loot their storehouses and take it to be their storehouse. A strong enemy will destroy the symbols of strength and will empty the symbols of their wealth and greed and injustice. But there's the, it, all the judgment, it's like math. There's an equal sign here. What you have done, God will have done to you. The punishment will fit the crime. And God even tells Israel, he says, you know, he tells a little story. He says, you've seen it, right? When the shepherd goes out to rescue a lamb from a lion... And the shepherd comes home with nothing more to show than a couple of lamb legs or lamb ears to show, right? In other words, he found that the lion had got to it first. Well, he says, when someone comes to rescue you, Israel, all they're going to find are little scraps of that fancy furniture that you've been laying around on while the poor were suffering in your streets. 
They're going to come home with nothing more than a fabric sample from your luxurious couch and a pillow off your fancy bed. The rich in Israel got rich through violent injustice against the poor. They were spending a lot on apparently at the furniture store. And so God says the only thing that's going to be left to you that anyone will find are scraps of furniture. They'll testify to your violence. And your sin was oppression and violence and theft. Your mangled loot is going to be evidence that God was just in the way he judged you. And in verse 13, God testifies again. God will punish Israel for their transgressions. Transgression is a very important word there. Uh, transgressions are violations of an agreement. God had a covenant agreement with Israel, and Israel broke that covenant agreement. They transgressed the covenant. And God's punishment will fit perfectly with the violations of the covenant stipulations that they've broken. We've seen already that that happens with regard to their injustice, but they're guilty of more than just injustice. We've seen in earlier chapters, they're also guilty of false religion. False religion. And for this, God says, he will rip the horns off the altars at Bethel. Now, to understand that, you need to understand, if, if you were a person in trouble and people were after you, you could run into the temple, throw yourselves on the horns of the altar. Now, the altar square and these big horns stick up off the corner. You could throw yourself on the horns of the altar and cry out for mercy. Is what you could do. And God says, I'm going to tear the horns off the altar. He's saying your religion will be destroyed as a source of a place where you can go to find comfort. God is going to destroy their false religion. He's going to destroy it. He's going to rip the worthless horns that they thought symbolized mercy off their altars. He's going to destroy the symbols of their false religion. And then he returns to their acts of injustice again. God's going to destroy their winter home and their summer home. Now, how many of us have winter homes and summer homes, right? We don't because it costs too much. They're wealthy, though. They've stole from the poor, so now they have a winter home and they have a summer home. You probably get the point. God's going to destroy the symbols of the wealth that they've garnered from stealing from everybody. God will smash their ivory houses so these winter and summer homes are not little shacks or cabins, are they? They're eight of ivory. They're great houses. Think big houses. They broke covenant with God with their false religion. God's going to destroy the symbols of that religion. They broke covenant with God through injustice. God's going to destroy the symbols of their gains through injustice. In every way, God's judgment of his people is fair because the punishment fits the crime. And those words, the punishment fits the crime, they, they sound very good to us when we think about human legal systems and, and we struggle as a nation to think about, well, do our punishments really fit the crime? With God, they do. And quite honestly, in our sin, that should terrify us because our crimes are great. Israel certainly should be terrified. And I think we should at least tremble a little bit. So when God brings his judgment to bear on his people in this life, his punishment is fair. He considers the accused. The crimes of the accused are obvious. They're not debatable. And the punishment fits the crime. 
Now in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, Paul wrote, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So in other words, Amos 3 in my Bible is in my Bible to bring hope. Now, I don't know about you, but I could find, we talked about what that one guy said about the book Amos last week. I could read Amos chapter 3 and think there might not be much hope there, right? That, that doesn't sound great. How can I find hope in the fairness of God. After all, if I'm, I'm his covenant child and he's told me to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, he's said that his will for me is my sanctification and therefore I should flee all these things and put on these things and take off these things and I don't do all those things, how can I find any hope here? Well, I think there's two ways you can find hope here. First of all, you can trust that God will only judge you for what is written in His Word. God only judged Israel for breaking the covenant that He had specifically made with them. None of these things that God brings up as, as crimes against God were a surprise to Israel that God would call these wicked. God had already said, this is righteousness, this is wickedness, and they chose wickedness. And so we can trust that, that what God has called us to do in His Word is the standard by which He will judge. He will never be random. Wouldn't it be absolutely terrifying to think of an omnipotent God who judged His people randomly, capriciously? What if God exercised His all-powerful Creator omnipotence against you randomly. You would live every moment of your life in terror. But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, indwelt by the Spirit of the Holy God, you have the written Word of God that tells you exactly what He desires of you in righteousness and holiness. You don't have to wonder about any random stuff. Do this. You know, so often we wrestle with that big question, right? What is the will of my God, my God for my life? Well, if you've not read the book, start there. He tells you a lot about His will for you. He may not tell you whether you should brush your teeth with paste or gel, but He tells you everything that matters, and He will never judge you for choosing gel. Right? He's, so you, you can know God's standard and trust that it is true and unchanging yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You don't have to worry if the culture changes directions. Does that mean God is changing directions? Do we need to adjust our standards of righteousness? To, no! You can depend on God's Word as the standard of righteousness. So that should bring you hope. You don't have to worry that there's one out there you're missing. It's all right there in that Bible you carry. So that's one way it brings hope. The second way it brings hope in Amos is this. We can remember that we're not Israel. Praise God, right? Praise God for the new covenant in Christ. 
right? We are the people of the new covenant. What that means is this. That on that day, the day of the Lord, when we stand before the Almighty God and, and the books are open wide, if you are a child of God by faith in Him, if, if you are in Christ, He will look at you and He will see the covenant keeping of Jesus by your name. He will not see your covenant breaking because Christ erased that. He will just see the covenant keeping of His Son and He will see you in Christ. Praise God for the new covenant written by the blood of Christ on the cross confirmed by the empty tomb. There is hope. There is hope. Hebrews 12, verse 6, does tell us that, that God does bring judgment on His people in this life. It also tells us this, that He does it for our good. So I guess there's a third way. You can know that if you do experience God's judgment on you in this life as a covenant child of God, that He does it for discipline. He does it to help make you more like Jesus. Hebrews 12, 6, For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. So if you disobey the Lord God as a child of, of God in Christ, you can know this, that He very well may bring about the consequences of sin, those just consequences fit the crime, consequences of sin in your life. But if He does... He is doing that to bring you to godly sorrow, which will bring you to repentance and will lead you to holiness in Christ. And that's where joy is to be found. And he's doing it because he loves you like a son. So there is good news. There is hope to be found here. One, that our God is not random. That you have his word, you know his standard of righteousness. Second, that... that we are under the new covenant in Christ by faith in Jesus and His shed blood. And third, that even when God does bring judgment on us today, He does it to make us more like Jesus, which is always a good thing. Now this morning, I, I, we each need to consider where we stand. Maybe there are, there are things in your life where you're saying, look, I recognize that I am in rebellion. I recognize that what I deserve right now is, just, is, is judgment that, that I don't even want to think about. Maybe you're in utter rebellion. Maybe you have actually never, ever trusted Christ to forgive you for your sin. If that's you this morning, the very first thing you need to do, the thing you need to do right this minute, is, is quit trying to be righteous on your own and make up your own standards for righteousness. Give that up. Trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and be rescued, be saved. Become a child of the King today. And, and brother and sister in Christ, if you're like me, you can think of some places where you, where you should expect some discipline. What do you do? Well, the Bible actually tells you what to do, right? I mean, isn't that good? The, the Bible doesn't just tell you what's sin and what's not sin. It tells you what to do with your sin when you find it. Take it to Him. Take it to the cross again. He has not run out of forgiveness. 
for you. He will forgive you if you confess your sin, if you turn away from it, you say, I want to follow Jesus. I don't want to follow my sin, the world, the flesh, and the devil. I want to follow Jesus. He will forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, believer. He will do that again today. So take it to Christ. And if you feel like right now you are suffering under the discipline of, of, of the Lord, well, let that discipline drive you to repentance. Don't just bemoan the discipline. Let it do its work in you, drive you to repentance that you might receive forgiveness and cleansing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for your word is true. We thank you for the picture that it paints for us, the reminder that it gives to us that you are a fair and a just God. Lord, I, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ, what I would pray for myself this morning. God, where we fail you, forgive us. Because Jesus died for our sin, forgive us and cleanse us from that unrighteousness. Help us, Lord, to walk with you in obedience. Help us to devote ourselves to the study of your word that, that we might know your standard of righteousness and commit ourselves to that standard. Lord, I, I just pray that your spirit would, would work with the spirit of, of each person here today. That they would know what they need to do with your word this morning, with each believer. And Lord, for the one who has never placed their faith in Christ, I pray that this morning your spirit would convict them of their sin. Help them see that they deserve more judgment than they can bear. And drive them to the cross of Christ that they might find forgiveness. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.